If you're joining us today for the first time, we're in part five of a series that we've been doing. Called, we've called it The Mission. So I, it, you can check it out on our podcast. Our podcast uh, on our website, livingwordli.org. Uh, and you can listen to it right on the podcast. One of the uh, mothers from the green room gave us $1,000 uh, in an offering several months ago, and we used that to purchase a new website that uh, has many more features. And one of the features is that you could listen right on uh, our website. Uh, and uh, there's an archive that we're creating of uh, various messages from Collision and the Green Room and, and Living Word. And so uh, we just would encourage you to, to go back and check to see what has been said. But very briefly, very, very briefly, let me just try to help you uh, get on board with where we're going today by just very, in a sentence or two, telling you where we've been, okay? So in the mission part one, what we said was, quoting from Jesus, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And we pointed out that the, the humanity of Jesus was something that he gloried in. He wasn't reluctant. He, he loved becoming a human being, God becoming a human being. He said he didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And that's good news for all of us because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he is, he is a sufficient Savior who is able to save to the uttermost. In part two of the mission, we, we, we spoke from the divine side of what the Apostle John said, that the Son of God, now not the Son of Man, but the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the wicked one. And that he accomplished in his cross by stripping or, 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 or spoiling principalities and powers and triumphing over them in his cross. In part three of the mission, we quoted from the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 3.13 that Christ, one of his missions was to redeem us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us, and what we said was we can really measure the love of God, the love of Christ for us because of his willingness to become a curse for us. You can check out the podcast and what that involves. But in part four, we, we, we did an expansion on that idea that Christ has redeemed us in the fullness of time, not just so that he might get us out from under the curse, as wonderful as that is, but that we might receive the adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba is, is, is what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, what Jesus prayed throughout his whole lifetime, which is, which is the word for Daddy, Dada. And there's the Spirit of Christ in us that now has the same intimate, personal relationship with God the Father, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So in part five, this morning, what I want to do is I want to go to another one of the mission statements of Jesus. I want to explore that. Uh, John Stott is a, an English theologian, pastor, very well respected in the body of Christ. He says concerning this portion of scripture that we're going to look at from Luke chapter 4, he called it the Nazareth, uh, uh, what do you call it? The, the na not mandate, but the, what's, that, what's that word I told you about? Manifesto, thank you. I'm so glad that you paid attention. <laughs> you know, you just pulled me out of an embarrassing moment. The Nazareth Manifesto 
uh, or the, the mandate that Jesus had received. And we're going to look at that from the Gospel of Luke. But I want you to know it's also found in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and so we're going to kind of try to see what's missing from Luke to help us understand what Luke is, is really saying. Luke brings out this truth in the commencement of the ministry of Jesus. That, that is, it's in the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Now, Jesus has the unique position. Now, I, I am, this morning, what I am doing is I am heralding the gospel. I am merely a messenger. You could reject me, but not reject the message. But in the case of Jesus, who is both the message and the messenger, if you reject either the message or the messenger, you're in trouble. Because Jesus is uniquely in that position that he is both the message and the messenger. And so in this portion of Scripture, and, and, and what, what I want you to do, because we're going to jump into verse 16, it's like in the middle of the chapter, I don't want you to lose the momentum of what is happening in this chapter because Luke starts off by saying that Jesus was baptized and Jesus was led by the Spirit. It's actually the word is driven by the Spirit, into the wilderness. Therefore, this throwdown, this confrontation. You ever hear the expression, they, they threw down the gauntlet? You know what a gauntlet is? A gauntlet was the, the glove, gloves that a knight wore. It, it covered and protected his fingers and his hand all the way up to his forearm. And so if a knight wanted to challenge an opponent, he would take his gloves and throw them at the feet. Now, that probably kind of developed years later where you may have seen in some movie where, where some guy takes off his, his, his gloves, you know, uh, kind of what we're familiar with, and he slaps somebody across the face with it. That insult is a challenge. Uh, I guess that's one of the reasons why we still have and maintain the idea of a throwdown. Only today's throwdowns are, 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 are not quite the same. Today's throwdowns are with Bobby Flay and with Rachel Ray. <laughs> you know, not very dangerous unless you get your finger cut, you know. So, uh, but what was taking place here in, in Luke chapter 4 was a, a battle of battles. Because this was, this was the anticipation of the whole human race. Is there anyone who is able to come? and to defeat the powers of darkness? Is there anyone able to free us from the dominion and chains of darkness? And the good news is, yes, God has raised up a champion in his son who has come and who has destroyed principalities, <clears throat> excuse me, and powers, and has triumphed over them. But Luke only gives us three of the temptations of Jesus. Jesus is being tried, tested, and tempted for not just one day, but for 40 days and for 40 nights. And you got to get this. Here's the momentum that Jesus, having defeated the devil in this last assault, he throws everything at Jesus. The Bible says that Satan, having departed from him for a more opportune season, Jesus returned now to public life. He returns now to the mandate and ministry of his life. And the Bible says that he was filled with the power of of the Holy Spirit. Now, having bound the strong man, the stronger man has, has now begun to, to, to ravage the goods of the strong man or to release the captives that Satan has had these many years. 
So we pick up then in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. So he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is his own hometown. Jesus, you know, it would be like me going back to Brooklyn, you know. Uh, I only spent 12 years in Brooklyn, but Jesus spent his whole life in Nazareth, right? And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, let me just stop here for a minute. We don't know if he asked for the prophet Isaiah to read or if it was just providence that fell upon him that day, maybe as part of that week's liturgy, you know? Uh, I do believe in the providence of God, but I also see here in the next sentence that Jesus had something specific in mind, and this was going to be his mission statement now at the commencement of his ministry. And notice this, it says, and when he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, and that happens to be Isaiah 61. He said this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because... He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He had sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable or the favorable year of our Lord. Just just, just imagine for a moment, having said that, I think, and, you, you know, you could judge the atmosphere in a room. Like even right now, you could judge and, and, and qualify the atmosphere in a room right, like, like this right now. I think that that was filled with static electricity. I think that that room was filled with, with attention. As the next verse says, then he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, as they're staring at him, they're gazing at him, he says to them, today, today, this 750-year-old prophecy, that's a long time. That's almost three times the length of our history as a nation. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him, and they marveled at his gracious words, which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, now here's the surprise, and we got to kind of read between the lines in the Gospels, Matthew and Mark. But he said to them, you will surely say to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Whatever you've heard done in Capernaum, do also in this country. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, he's saying, I am the fulfillment of that prophetic word. I am the Messiah. Clearly, He he is claiming that the Spirit of God is upon him for this purpose, for this commission, to heal the brokenhearted, to bind up their wounds, to set free the captives. This is the mission that my Father has given to me. This is the reason why I came into the world. And it appears at first glance that they thought, well, verse 22 says that they were amazed or they marveled at his gracious words, but not all, but not all. Because they were excited at first about the message, but they weren't very excited about the messenger. That's why they say in Luke, is this not Joseph's son? And when we make a comparison with Mark and with, and with Matthew, there was a little more that was said. 
They said, we know this kid. We know this guy. He used to go to the youth group on Friday nights. We're familiar with him. This is Mary's boy, you know? His, his, His brothers and his sister, are they not living among us? And the Bible says that they were offended at him. They liked his message at this point, but they didn't like the messenger because they were familiar with him and because of their familiarity with him. That's why Jesus is about to say that no prophet's without honor except in his own house, in his own home. And so let's, let's, let, let, let's just think about this for a minute. They were offended at him, but if you're offended at the only one who can save you, man, you are in trouble. The principle that Jesus is going to bring out here that, that courses through the entire gospel, I want you to get this, is a very important one. Because Jesus, the things that he did and the way that he did them and the things that he said as well as the way that he said them were purposed and designed for, for one great accomplishment. And that was to offend their minds to display what was in their hearts. When a mind is offended, it is usually the heart that is being revealed. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And out of the abundance of their heart, they were, they were complaining because of their familiarity with Jesus, and they were offended. The word offended means to stumble. They stumbled because of him as a person. Now, what Jesus was constantly doing through the Gospels is he was offending people's sense of religious sensibilities. He would offend their religious mind to reveal and to display really what was in their heart. That's one of the reasons why. Listen, they should have known better. He was testing them. The one who had just been tested, tried, and tempted is now testing the hearts of the people. And he had every right to do so. Malachi, the last prophetic word, and then there was 400 years of silence between the Testaments. You would think that the people would have understood and have studied that last prophetic word, the silence of all those years. And this is what Malachi says. Listen, I'll just read a couple of verses. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Who's that? John the Baptist. Sure, John is to prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path, right? So that's talking about John. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger, that's what Jesus was, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who is going to be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and he will purge them as gold and silver. Who's going to be able to stand the test of fire that Jesus comes to reveal what is in the hearts of the first century Jewish people? Let me just say this, and I want to qualify this. We're not just talking about Jewish people. We're talking about all peoples. We're talking about the very nature of the human heart that Jeremiah said is deceptively wicked. No man knows his own heart. And because of the things that Jesus did, 
He's about ready to give them a, a CT scan of their own hearts and expose it for the deficiency that, that, that it was filled with. I want you to think about this. Jesus not only comes to expose the condition of their heart, he also comes to give them a new heart. The very essence of the new covenant is that God will take out the stony heart and give them a pliable, soft heart that beats toward him where he can write his, his, his nature upon the hearts of men. You know, it's funny. I was listening to uh, Fox News just the other day and they were talking about this study that was just completed. I believe it was in the University of Michigan. They, they were studying narcissists. You know what a narcissist is? Somebody who is enamored with themselves, somebody who loves them, their own image and their own, you know, they think more highly of themselves than they ought to. And the study found that people who are narcissists have a greater propensity to having heart disease than the general population. Isn't that amazing? They're, and they spoke about the fact that cortisol is released in, in the body of, of, of these people who are, who are narcissists. It's pride. The one that my Bible says that pride goes before destruction and a hearty spirit before a fall. It's detrimental to the human heart to remain in pride. And what we need is a good measure of grace and the transforming power of Christ. It's pride of self-achievement, self-righteousness that Jesus was constantly confronting. Pride is not only unattractive, beloved, I believe with all my heart, it's absolutely deadly. So let's look back at verse 24 of Luke and see what Jesus says. And then he said, and here's, here's the furtherance of the message. He's going to expound upon, upon what he's read from Isaiah 61. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Seraphith to the region of Sidon. In other words, to a Gentile woman who happened to be a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and to none of them were cleansed, or none of them were cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian, another Gentile, he mentions. So all those in the synagogue, now, now get, get this, all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with rage, and they rose up to thrust him out of the city. They, they, they moved him out, and they led him to the brow of the hill upon which the city was built, that they might throw him over the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way because his time had not yet come. But they were on the verge of committing murder, of casting the Son of God down a hill and bloodying the Son of God because of what he said. And what did he say? He just brought out the history of the Jewish people and of God dealing in sovereignty, God dealing in sovereign grace, God, God showing mercy to whom he will show mercy, and God being gracious to whom he will be gracious, and God protecting whom he will protect. And that rocked their theology. When he, they realized that God bypassed the chosen people of God 
and chose rather instead the undeserving Gentiles. Because that's what grace is all about. It's not that we deserve grace. He gives grace to those that don't deserve grace. He gives mercy and, and glory to those who, who, are, who are not even asking for it. It's his prerogative. It's his right because of his sovereign identity. Here are fathers and sons and grandsons, right, in the synagogue who are now ready to become a bloodthirsty mob all because of the words of Jesus, who at first they said these were gracious words, but now it enraged them and it infuriated them because it did not correspond to their theology. It just absolutely infuriated them and set them in a rage. It was exposing their hearts. He was offending their minds purposely to show them this is what's in your heart. You would rather kill God if you could, if you had the opportunity. But this is how all human beings are. Apart from grace, apart from the transformation of that new heart that I spoke of, this is the human heart that is dysfunctional and desperately wicked above all things. And when God reveals this about a human heart, it's not to, to glee or to, or to rejoice. It's so that men in the hope of, of seeking grace and mercy will have a change of heart and experience the grace of God. Remember when David had lived for this entire year in a state of sin without any conviction at all. And the bony finger of the prophet Nathan gave him a story and then pointed and said, David, you are the man. At that moment, it's like the spell over his life had broken. I don't know if any of you remember the the movie with uh, uh, Harrison Ford in in one of the Indiana Jones movies where they were in India and he was forced to drink this blood and went into a trance, right? But that little uh, guy uh, took a torch and, and burned his leg and he snapped out of it. The trance was broken, you know? It's like, David, the trance was broken and suddenly he realized his sin. And in Psalm 51, he he confesses his sin. But he says something so powerful. He says, God, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me, which is the prayer that everyone should pray when they are first coming to Jesus Christ and acknowledging that they have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Her name was Christine Renrich, Henrich, H-E-N-R-I-C-H. She was a a uh, world-class gymnast, uh, a champion gymnast. But in 1988, she missed making the Olympic team. She weighed just about 100 pounds. And she believed that the reason why she didn't make the team was because she was too fat. So she began to attack her own body as though it were an enemy. And and the diet at first, which was first the diet, became then full-blown anorexia and bulimia. She became so weak that that she couldn't perform anymore and she couldn't compete anymore. And even though the realization that her dream was over of becoming an Olympic star, she continued in the compulsion of losing weight 10 days after her 22nd birthday. 
She died of organ failure at 60 pounds. Athletes who are many times perfectionists and think that just if I try just a little bit harder, if I work at this just a little bit more, I could reach that place of perfection. Well, there's a place of of attempting to reach that spiritual perfection that is just as deadly, that robs us of the nutrition that we really need from God, which is faith and grace and mercy, and becomes deadly. To become a legalist, to become to become so religious, to become so bent on perfection that you are trying and striving in yourself to do what Jesus Christ has already accomplished in himself. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. But there's a wider implication here. It's beyond the neighbors of Jesus, okay? It's, it's, it's really... It it really goes back to the mission and the call of the nation and what they were supposed to be about in the first place. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles would come to the nation of Israel to discover the God of the Bible. They were to be a light unto all the nations. But instead of becoming a light, they became a reproach. Instead of being attractive, they they became self-righteous, and they had a reputation for being arrogant and proudful. And you know, the, 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 the animosity existed on both sides uh, between the Gentiles who, who held them in contempt, and, and the Jews held the, the Gentiles in contempt. And, and if any Jew would allow a Gentile to come into his house, his house would be considered unclean, defiled. And so the Jews and the Gentiles never had any relationships with one another. And Israel missed their calling and their mandate to be a light to the nations of the world. And I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus is the last. He is the final, quintessential Israelite. He is the ultimate Israelite who is the light of the world, who attracts and draws the nations unto himself. I wonder if we realize just how amazing grace is. I mean, I am flawed every time I go go a little bit deeper in my understanding of the unearned, undeserved grace of God. I'll never tire of saying it. But one of the greatest ways of demonstrating the grace of God and the power of grace and the practicality of this grace, is to see what happened in that first century when both Jew and Gentile came together. For his intention was to take of the two, the Jew and the Gentile, and to make of the two one new man, removing that middle wall of separation and prejudice and bigotry and healing healing centuries and generations of, of bigotry and hatred. One of the most beautiful pictures of this is found in Acts chapter 20, where the apostle Paul is kneeling on the ground with a, with a bunch of Ephesian elders, and, and, and they're weeping, and Paul's weeping, and Paul's saying, you guys are breaking my heart because he had just told them that you'll not see my face again. Here's a Jew and Gentiles who are, who are now so embraced in care and affection for one another this is, this is what the grace of God could do. It could transform both Jew and Gentile. And give man a brand new heart, for if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. 
old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. This is God at his best, freely giving us what we don't deserve, what we could never earn. This is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Entering into the feelings of our weaknesses as the man Christ Jesus. You know, I love, I love, I love this portion of scripture where it talks about him healing the brokenhearted, recovery of sight to the blind. All of these things that Jesus did in his miraculous ministry were all a foretaste of a better day that's coming. A day in which there'll be no more pain and there'll be no more sorrow and there'll be no more death. For the one who said from the cross, it is finished, will one day announce before an assembled universe of redeemed believers, men and women, and he will say to them, behold, I make all things new. And there'll be no more pain and sorrow and death and sickness for the former things have passed away. When we pull a divine miracle into our present, we're pulling the kingdom of God that is to ultimately be into our present experience. And that's a good thing. Well, the ministry of the Jewish people was described by, the, by, by, by Jeremiah the prophet as my people having committed two sins. Number one, they've forsaken the fountain of living water. Number two, they have carved for themselves cisterns that can hold no water. You know what a cistern was? A cistern was a, it may have been a large pot, may have been carved out of stone to gather rainwater. And what, what, what Jeremiah is saying is that you've made religion such a, a man-made effort. You've made religion such a matter of accomplishment and achievement that it can hold no water, but you've forsaken the living water for these broken cisterns that can hold no water. They were serving out of ceremony, making void the word of God through their vain traditions. Rather than serving out of love, they were serving out of obligation. Rather than serving out of gratitude, they were serving out of a sense of duty. They thought that God could be satisfied by their efforts. That's one of the reasons why Jesus was constantly confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees, for they had reduced the the Jewish religion into a, an empty wineskin that can, could not contain the new wine that he was about to introduce. In closing, I'll just say this about the parable. There was a story Jesus told, and he asked the people, he said, tell me what the right answer is. He said, there was a man who had two sons. He said to his first son, go, son, work in my field. And his son said, no, I'm not. But later he changed his mind and he went. And he said to his second son the same thing. And this one said, okay, I will. But he didn't go. Now, which of the two did the will of his father? And they responded correctly. They said the first one. And then Jesus said this to a religious group of people. Listen to what he said. He said, he said truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God 
ahead of you, ahead of you for whom the kingdom has been prepared. They're going to sit down in the kingdom with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob while you're shut out of the kingdom. C.S. Lewis in Musing over this idea of what Jesus was talking about here, especially in that last verse, wrote this, and this is what I wanted you to know. Prostitutes, he said, are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. In other words, they know that life stinks. They know that their life is not an easy life. They can turn to God. But he says it's the proud, the greedy, the self-righteous, that are in danger. Those are the ones that are in danger, the proud, the self-righteous that are in danger. What can keep you out of the kingdom of God is pride, self-righteousness. I could do this. I could. And tell you what, it's not just the first century Jewish people we're talking about. We're talking about people today as well. Multiple hundreds of millions of maybe even billions of people on planet Earth today. They don't need this. Anybody ever tell you your religion is a crutch, your Christianity is a crutch? I don't need it. I poured my heart out to a young man once in the kitchen I'll never forget. I was talking to him and his, and his prospective wife. And I gave him the gospel in a sentence, and he said, not interested. Don't need it. It's okay for somebody else, not me. And I said, because you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, just like Paul said, we turn to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles rejoiced. Because Jesus is not just the God of the Jew. He's the God of both Jew and Gentile, to make of the two one. And here's the amazing thing, that the one who judges our sin invites us to enter into his rest of peace, and joy, to enter into his rest of peace and joy. For the mission of Christ is the same today as it was then, to heal broken hearts and broken lives. If you're here this morning and that describes you, broken heart, broken life, I want to pray for you that God would heal your broken heart. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He said, this was my mandate. This was my mission to come to heal the brokenhearted. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the grace of God that has appeared toward all men, not just Jews and not just Gentiles, but to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness, and worldly desires, but to seek you, O oh God. I pray this morning, Father, that if there's anyone here right now that falls into that category this morning that I spoke about where there is a broken heart, there's a broken life, that, that dreams have been broken, disappointments have entered in, that you take the very things that were meant to destroy them and you use it for your glory. And so I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you would heal those that would turn to you now and that there would be many that would turn to you now this morning and start that conversation with you. For you are good and gracious to all that call upon the name of the Lord, 
I pray that today, those of you that are hearing this message will call in the name of Jesus, even softly where you are right now. Just say the name Jesus. Jesus. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Give me a new heart. Transform this heart of stone into a heart that's pliable in your hands. Jesus, I turn my life over to you. That's what his desire is. And he will not relent until he is satisfied by bringing you into his kingdom. Amen.